Hey everyone, you're listening to InfoQuench with Jeff and Amy. We're chatting about how to get the most out of life and covering a ton of interesting topics. So there's sure to be something for just about everyone. Let's get to it. Hey everybody and welcome to InfoQuench. I'm your host Jeff. And I'm Amy and I'm really excited about this topic. This episode's topic is all around negotiation and at first when I started researching it I was thinking more along the lines of business but I really wanted it to apply to everyday, everyday life. life hold whoa. that whoa hey we're on the same this is going to be a good podcast there we go well sticking with the brand of life improvement tips which is what InfoQuench is all about I wanted it to be broader than just a business application and I was really surprised at how much there is out there that you can use in everyday life so let's dive into it yeah we, there's so much okay go ahead sorry the one what a one what? Oh, what, what? What, what? Number one. Number one. Actually, I'm going to start it with a quote. So yes. the quote for this episode is, Negotiation is often described as the art of letting the other side have your way. Yeah, that's great. That makes so <laughs> much sense. Letting the other side have your way. And that's by uh, Christopher Voss. Christopher Voss is actually a... Uh, uh, former lead international kidnapping negotiator for the FBI. That's pretty cool. And he wrote a book called Never Split the Difference. And Jeff and I actually ch- checked out a podcast episode from the Knowledge Project where they interviewed Chris Voss. And what a fascinating individual! Highly intelligent, of course, and just no- knows the way human the human mind works. Really, when it comes to negotiation. Right, and it wasn't just an episode focused on hostage negotiations. No. It was uh, well uh, covered a whole a wide range of information. But it, it, you know, what was really great about this is Jeff listened with me. So this is episode number two out of one hundred plus episodes that he has participated in doing research for. Wow, you make me sound so lazy. I work hard, man. <laughs> oh, you do, you do. I like doing the research. I'm just, I'm just. Uh, it'll be interesting to see, though. See if the if the uh, if our listeners can tell the difference. If you're bringing a little bit more info to the table, right? Quenching usually, that info. Usually, you play the role of asking questions, which is an important role too. And that well, helps. we talked about that, right? We, I like it, it's. I play the role of like perhaps the listener and basically they ask they would they can't ask us questions so i kind of play the everyman and ask the questions on behalf of the listener yeah at least that's the way i try to there's a lot of times i'm throwing a not knowing anything (laughs) we're we're having an episode where we're both talking at the same time that's all right yeah we're uh, on the same we're vibing Mm. the um yeah, I think it's a great thing because I often throw a lot of information out there. So it slows us down and lets us think a little bit about what I've said. So I want to start out with talking about who should make the first offer. And when we're going through this episode, think about, don't just think about with, in a business negotiation, think about when you're buying a house or buying a car or picking up a new cell phone at the local kiosk and, and making a negotiation a there price on your insurance or something you know? right negotiation is you know everywhere in our everyday life it's not always as formal as uh, sitting mm-hmm. in a boardroom but it's definitely there and if you understand how to do it well you can definitely get more out of life in general yeah so there is a a largely debatable question and it's who should make the first offer And there is a very, I guess, in researching this, a lot of the articles I came across suggested that you should make the first offer. 
So Harvard, Harvard Business Schools, for one, they say that there's an inherent uh, ambiguity for most negotiations. So experts suggest that you should wait um, for the other side to speak first. But they also quote psychological research that suggests that more often than not, negotiators who make the first offer come out ahead. So mm. they're, you know, they, they sort of cover their, their straddle in the fence on should make the first offer. Uh, I went to Masterclass. They have a website. And they say one of the best negotiating strategies is to seize control of the bargaining table. And that's just by setting initial terms of negotiation. They say whoever speaks first sets the terms of debate and they can steer the discussion. That's not always the case because, like, if you take it if you take it down a few notches out of business and stuff, if someone owns like a pawn shop, they're always on the receiving end of the first because they always say, "Well, what do you want? What do you want for this?" Right? And so the person that's selling the object to them, to the pawn shop owner, has to throw out the first number. So they're never really in a position where they can make the first offer really. Because like the person is that how pawn shops it. always work? Well, I think so. It's like they. What are you somebody, pawning? That's what I want to know. Somebody brings in like a watch to pawn or whatever, right? And they say, and then they say, well, the, the person that owns the pawn shop basically says, well, how much will you give me for this watch? Like, what do you what do you want for it? What do you want for this watch? And oh, they they say like twenty five thousand dollars, and they say that's crazy. I'll give you ten dollars, and he's like, okay, <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, that's the way the negotiating works there. So they always come from a from a vantage point where they're not super like in control it seems but maybe not i don't know what do you think well i don't know i've actually i've actually never been in a pawn shop i was just joking with oh. wondering why you're in a pawn shop i always associate oh. pawn shops with people trying to get offload some stolen merchandise <laughs> but maybe. so i but i i mean a good example would be if you're buying a house mm. in a way the seller has always made the first offer because they've set the selling price right so um another there's Ink Magazine, they have a website, and they talk about setting the anchor, and the word anchor comes up a lot in negotiations. And so they say that you set an anchor with your first offer, and that that anchor, what it means is that uh, the value of an offer is highly influenced by that first relevant number known as the anchor. And that will strongly influence the whole process of the negotiation. So, for example, in the house buying example, right. we said... If a seller has a very high number, that does set a high anchor. Right. And as a buyer, you're probably, in your mind, trying to think of the distance from that number. How far can you reasonably go down? Now, if you were somebody who was going to buy a car or and you know wasn't even up for sale yet, and you right. approach somebody as the buyer, you could go ahead and make the first offer and set it really low lowball it if you knew that they were interested in selling their car and assuming that the price would eventually come out a little bit closer to what you've said. So this whole idea of anchoring is saying that whoever goes first sets the anchor and you that don't the end be, price will be closer to what they've set it at. You definitely don't want to be insulting in the price you make for your anchor because people can walk away from a negotiation in that respect, right? Well, it's interesting when you're going through a house, like I think of home buying process specifically, yeah. you know, the things that I'm sure a lot of people can relate that those are the things you contemplate. Are they going to be offended right. if I go too low? And this is, so this whole situation, I think of all the items I came across on negotiation, most of them are, 
are quite straightforward. The tips we'll give. This was the one that was debatable, but when we listened to the podcast with Chris Voss, it it really came out clearly to me what the best approach would be, and it was with a story he told. He he talked about the fact that if you do set an anchor, you set a high anchor, right. and one that you know is not likely to be reached, you're you're starting out your whole negotiation process with without a truth, right? You know, so it's, and you're also starting it out as though you're assuming a win-lose scenario versus a win-win mm-hmm. scenario, which is what most people would say a negotiation should be. Everybody comes out with what they want. And he tells the story of the salary. So this uh, this is a great oh, yes. a great example this of this. So there's there's a, a, a son and a father, and they're having a discussion. The son has a job. He's making $85,000 a year, and he's going to apply for a new job. And he's talking to his father about what he should ask for a salary. And he said, Dad, I'm going, I'm going to ask for 110 and ask for 110,000. The father's like, Are you sure you're really going to ask for that much? I mean, that's a huge increase from 85. You know, it's $25,000 more but percentage wise. It's a huge increase. He said, No, no, I, Dad, I'm going to go ask for the 110. Right. So he went in adamant. And, you know, during the salary negotiations, they asked him, What do you, what do you want? And he said, 110. And, and you know what? They gave in. They like, gave him yeah. the, they they gave gave him him the 110. Wanted. And, uh, you know, a few months later, he's working alongside a colleague who was hired around the same time as him and, you know, both in the same, uh, you know, level of position. And, and his colleague asked him, you know, so, you know, what do you think about the, the rate that we, you know, the wage that we make for this work that we're doing? And, and the guy said, you know, I got to be honest, I negotiated my own deal on this, you know, pretty proud. Yeah. And his colleague said, so you're telling me you got more than 125000 <laughs> And so, I mean, that story alone, that example alone showed that, you know, making the first offer can leave money on the table. Mm-hmm. It also it also proves the fact that you should do as much research as you can on what the salary <laughs> right. going rate is, you know. Yeah, maybe ask around you. there. <laughs> and I guess another great example of this, Stephen Covey wrote uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And, I, you know, it's a quite popular book. I'm sure a lot of our listeners have, have heard of it or, or read it. But he talks about uh, specifically seek first to understand and then to be understood. And yeah. that applies very well to negotiating. You know, uh, you know, first off, listen, understand where where the position is, what the opponent or or not the opponent, but the other side, what they're right. looking for. And then do that before you speak. Be genuinely curious, open to learning about where they're coming from, and that'll end up in a more successful outcome for the negotiation. So that brings us to our definition for this episode. Definition. It's actually an acronym called BATNA. BATNA. Which apparently anybody who has done any kind of reading or research or learning around negotiation will be likely familiar with the term I was not so why that's why I'm sharing it with listeners I was not either so it's from negotiation theory and what it means it's it stands for the best alternative to a negotiated agreement so it's essentially it's the most advantageous uh, alternate course of action that you can take if negotiations fail and the reason this isn't you know I guess ingrained in negotiation theory is that it's sort of the, the you know the bottom the worst the worst case scenario or the or the best alternative right. so that that's what you is sort of the bottom rung i guess this is the like the the least amount that you will accept exactly basically. or or it could be 
just having in your mind if negotiations fail what the alternative is and and to be okay with that so for instance maybe the alternative is that you're you're going to mediation or um you know depending on what the level of negotiation is maybe it's that you're walking away from a house that you want to buy and you know and you're going to lose that but does negotiators still feel like the batna is a, a successful even though it's like the bottom rung of what they would expect in a negotiation do they still see it as a success do you know what i mean well, I think the intent is that it would be acceptable. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the it's the best alternative. If they can't reach gotcha. a negotiation, it would be acceptable to them. And the whole reason that people have this, I guess, in negotiation and why it's taught is that it's supposed to provide people with a sense of calm. Mm-hmm. So during negotiations, they already have in their mind, okay, if this goes south, right, this is this is where we'll be at, and that gives them a, a you know just a calmer way of approaching the, the overall debate. There's a common held belief that. Uh, that negotiations in negoti- in any negotiation people should come out equally on both ends right but that really the art i feel like the art of negotiation would be to make the other person feel like they came out on the like on an even keel but you actually came out ahead well i mean right? that goes back to our quote right letting yeah. the other side have your way yeah <laughs> it, yeah, yeah it has that implication i'm going to go back to chris voss and and the reason i i keep going back to him i just think you know as a uh you know, retired hostage negotiator. He's negotiated with the highest stakes on the line, you know, human life. And so I tend to value a lot of great stories. He did. And I value a lot of the input he had. So with regard to Batna, he actually saw it as a weakness. He feels that, you know, human beings are goal driven. And that if you have that in, in your mind, you will tend to give up you know, you'll quit as soon as you get anything above Batna. Right. Um, and you'll see that as your success and then just give up. He also said that, you know, sometimes there isn't one. Like, for instance, in a hostage negotiation, yeah. go in a literal, in the very literal he was sense, saying there's that he not could, an alternative. He could tell pretty much right away whether or not it was going to be a successful hostage situation if someone was, you know, if it was going to go south pretty quickly, he could figure it out pretty quickly. But he was wrong. I remember at one point he was wrong and he was like, and I now I know why, and I can fix that. You know what I mean? Well, That's yeah, really and cool. I think a lot of that would just have to come from pure experience. Yeah, it's one of it's, those like learn on the job. It'd be like pretty hellish trying to learn on the job. He was talking one. to everything from like tone of his voice to like it's it's just the amount of uh, care that's taken. Obviously, in a high stakes negotiation, is is incredible. Well, but, yes, and so uh, even taking even a little bit of that, mm-hmm. you can imagine how advantageous that would be for you if you're negotiating something as simple as i don't know with your cell phone carrier yeah (laughs) i know know. i can't wait to try out some of these tricks because i think i think that they would work you know i think some of them are more easily implemented than others but uh some of them are a little more complex but let's go through some quick some other quick tips that we picked up from from uh chris voss one question he or one suggestion he said if in negotiations if somebody just comes at you with something that there's just no way you know, it's, it's completely unacceptable term for the for the uh, the agreement. You just ask ask them, how am I supposed to do that? You know, oh, yeah. put the question back to them. And a lot of times, when people are confronted with that question, it'll invite collaboration. So then that'll mm. that'll further the discussion. So you can come to a point where it is acceptable. The more you can put the thought ball in their court, the better. Well, and he also said people are more ready, more likely to implement you know, whatever you agree on. Right. If they're part of, you know, discussing the how. 
So it's not just yep. getting to the yes, but it's like, it's, how, it's how are we going to accomplish actively this? involved in the situation and the negotiation for sure. Yeah. And he suggests starting out any type of negotiation with negotiation with a summary of the facts. So again, this one may apply more to business, but I guess creatively it could apply to other situations too. And it's just, you know, coming to the table with laying out the facts for both parties so that you're both clear. Yeah. He mentioned that there's no spin in this. If there's an elephant in the room, get it out right away, put it right out on the table so that everybody can see that elephant and then move past it. Right. So that, that whole concept of, of labels. So if you're, if you That's have right. two people coming, well, he talked about himself going on stage uh, as a speaker. Mm-hmm. He, obviously, he speaks uh, as a professional, um, you know, speaker for this particular topic. When he comes out on stage, he realizes that a lot of his audience is looking at him as only a, a hostage, hostage negotiator, and they think, "What what can he have to share with us?" So he addresses that straight off the bat and yeah. says, I'm sure a lot of you are here thinking, what can you learn from me? I'm like, what, what pertains to hostage negotiation yeah, that would exactly relate right. to your own life? I remember he said that that is a way of disarming the entire audience because once that's out of the way, he can move on and actually teach them something or whatever, you know? Well, right. and if it could be two companies, it could be a, you know, you could own a new startup company mm-hmm. and go into the table trying to get somebody's business. Right. And it's part of that might be addressing, you know, hey, you know what, you know, I, you probably figure we're a fairly new startup company and want, you know, wanting to go with somebody more established. And here, let me tell you why, you know, but it basically is just putting that out, acknowledging it. Yeah. And then giving further information as to, you know, why that concern shouldn't be a concern. Right. And, you know, and it's just, it's not ignoring the elephant in the room, putting it out there. Yeah. Uh, he used the example with real estate too. Yeah. That was fascinating too, that the way he explained the way it works in real estate. Well, a lot of realtors will, I guess, well, buyers and sellers will look at realtors as only being in it for the commission. Mm-hmm. So he said, there's a lot to be said for a realtor who uh, is working with the client or trying to get a client. And acknowledging the fact that, hey, you know, I understand that most people see realtors as just somebody who's looking to close a deal quickly and doesn't necessarily have your best interest at That's heart. a good spiel for a realtor to do on a client, for sure, because it disarms them as opportunistic, you know, and well, I mean, it's their job, but it's, they don't want to, but a client doesn't want to hear that the only reason why a realtor is in the game is to make money. They want to help the client. Right. And, and if you go in and just deny it all, that also can put people put their card up. Like, why are yeah. they denying this so adamantly? And why are they not bringing it up at all? Right. Right. Like, if a realtor doesn't bring up the fact, you know, I know, I, I, I would imagine that a lot of realtors leave like the whole idea of commission towards the end of the discussion or whatever, so that they can focus on the client's needs. Right. You know what I mean? Without having that. In, oh yeah. Out. I mean, it's the same as anybody trying to sell you a product. The price yeah. is the last thing you'll hear. Up yeah. until that point, it's everything else. How can we benefit you? And then and then the price comes in last because they know that that could be the deal breaker or the deterrent. So yeah. they want to make sure that you so the more that the realtor, what it is they have to offer first. Yeah, exactly. The more the realtor can make it a, a, like a, an obvious symbiotic relationship between the client and the realtor, the more successful they will be overall, you know, overall right. as far as like helping the client and selling the property. So it's a win-win for everybody. And I think with any of these, these particular ones, when we talk about labels and going into a, you know, a discussion, a negotiation, whether you're trying to get a new client or if you're trying to purchase something, 
A lot of times, uh, if you're the person who's calling out the elephant in the room, you're that salesperson. Right. This is the type of thing you practice that pitch. You, you practice, practice it. it. You get it down pat, and you know exactly but how you're going to approach it, but you don't ignore it. Gives and you a little bit of a power position too, doesn't it, when you call out the elephant in the room? I feel. Well, I'd like to think too. That it just it builds up. It builds up a level of uh, rapport and trust. Yes. Yeah. And. I think people appreciate that. Uh, people absolutely appreciate that. The like human nature of like negotiation, like the the human element of it, is not lost on people. I don't think. Well, for me, I know personally when I when I buy something or I when something's too polished, too slick, mm-hmm. you know that, and it's, it, you feel like you're being sold to. That to me is a put off. It is. You're right. You feel as though okay, there's something they're they're pulling something on me here. Yeah. This is a little too. It, it just, it's yeah. So it can be too polished as well. I've seen people like just just. Uh, I hope you don't mind. Just this quick little aside. I've seen people and when I when I lived in Korea, I had lived there for a long time, and they're negotiating buying something as simple as like you know a shirt, and they know exactly what it's worth, and then the you know the person tries to sell it to them for like three times the price. And the person, like my friend would just basically say, I know exactly what this is worth and this is what I'm going to give you. And they're like, oh, okay. They know the gig's up. You know what I mean? <laughs> they know the gig's up because they know the person knows the worth. So I imagine that happens a lot in negotiations as well. When there's a one negotiator who knows the worth of like what it is that they're negotiating and won't, won't dance around it, like calls out the elephant in the room and says, no, this is what it's worth. You know what I mean? Sorry, I know that was a little... No, but I think that's a very practical, real-world example. Yeah. And so just going back to some of the other things that Voss covered, I mean, they talked about the whole getting fired for hiring IBM, which I guess is a common, uh, you know analogy that's made that... That I've never heard that one before, but that makes sense. Just that it's, you know, if you do something, if you take the safe route, or what's perceived as the, you know, the generally acceptable route for something and you fail, it's more acceptable than somebody who takes the the risk. Yes. Because embarrassment is not like a different, a new kind of embarrassment is not welcomed to anybody. Right. You know what I mean? I remember him mentioning that. It's It's like, no one wants to be, no one wants to fail in a new way and be embarrassed. Yes. That whole, and I, that's just sort of an interesting thing that he talked about it as an aside, but it was, uh, you know, he said, we need to step away from that. See, you aren't know? you impressed how much I remembered? I am really impressed. <laughs> impressed. I, that one stuck out to me because I worked for IBM years and years oh, ago. Okay. Because <laughs> he, used the, he used the analogy like, okay, somebody who wants to invest in a computer company went with IBM instead of Apple, but, but you know. It's known that Apple and Microsoft became the giants of the tech world, but people went with IBM, like invested with IBM because they were safe and they made a mistake, you know, to a degree. So he also talked about calibrated questions. This one I found really fascinating. Yeah, I'm going to implement this one. It's, you know, it's a very simple way. (laughs) It's just a little change in how you phrase things. So if you're talking with somebody, you can say... How would you like to proceed? You know, and, and I, there's a million scenarios where I can say that you would be like making a diverse, that next step. How would you like to proceed? Like, you know, what what you know, what do you uh, like? Yeah, how do you want to proceed? And if so somebody yeah. is rather analytical, or probably just most people in general, would all of a sudden try to start. You know, they'd formulate 
different answers in their mind right. about what the next steps could be, what the best answer is. I, so, I like the one where he would use where, where he used like uh, the idea where it's like, I feel you have you might have a different way to approach this, but I don't. And then boom, right? Out, so out that's exactly the next step. Yeah. So the first scenario is what how most people would phrase the question is, yeah. how would you like to proceed? Yeah. Where he suggests you. Mention, you say to them, yeah, it seems like you have some next steps in mind. So, yeah. yeah, And, 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 they, then, and, she, and let them, and then he said that to, that's often talked about as being the unlocking of floodgates of truth telling. It's like a Jedi mind trick. And, and he said it works with all different kinds of types of personalities. Like if someone's analytical and they're holding back, like their, their game plan, if you say something like that, they want to innately share it. So they do. Well, that's right. It's already on their mind, so you're yeah. you're basically acknowledging that they most people have something going on in their head yeah. <laughs> during these discussions. Yeah, they have so a game plan, right? You're you're acknowledging that, and you're and yeah. and saying, I, you know, I, I I you seem to have like some ideas in mind. Can <laughs> you, you could share come to those? some kind of stalemate where every, both of you just keep saying that back and forth. <laughs> oh, I feel I feel you have something in your mind. Well, I feel you have something in your mind. <laughs> he also. <laughs> He also talks about, you know, if you do reach a, a point of silence, that's a great way to, you know. Right, to break So if you reach silence. silence, you know, say, that's how you can keep the discussion going is, you know. Yeah. You seem to be, you know, we seem to be a little bit stuck. What, what you know, yeah. you seem to be thinking about next steps or. Yeah, so what do you, what do you got on your mind? You seem to have some thoughts. Can you share those with us? Yeah. Um, I'm going to use that with our little guy. <laughs> you seem to not want to go to school today. Can you share that with me? <laughs> some of them, some of them are more easy, easily implemented on kids, but kids are definitely great negotiators. They just yeah. ask things a million times. Unfortunately, it doesn't work as well as as adults. Although some adults do try it. Yeah. Um, so Voss also talks about one of the most dangerous negotiations you can be in are the ones that you're not even aware of. Mm. And he said, whenever there is a yes floating in the air or an I want, that's a negotiation. And oftentimes I think we we associate a negotiation with something involving a dollar value. But he talks about the negotiation of time. And I love the example he said of uh, working with a woman whose job was to purchase the rights to music. Okay. I, and I, I seem to have missed this part. So she worked and she, yeah. she said, my job's pretty straightforward. It doesn't involve a negotiation. There's a set price for the rights to music. So I call the guy at Sony and I let him know what music I want to buy. And that's okay. pretty much it. And he talked about the fact that that is still very much a negotiation. He, he said, that person, do you think if you're you know, extra kind to that person and courteous in your dealings, Will your request go to the top of the pile uh, or yeah. the bottom of the pile or file 13 into the garbage can? Thinking how you deal with people in general, it makes sense to be kind and courteous yeah. because even if you think it's a straightforward transaction where the price has been set, time is an important commodity. So yeah. somebody may be viewed as just being an order taker, but they also have the power to delay that order. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> Or if you're in a restaurant, they have the power to spit in that order. That's true. Hopefully that never happens. But I, we all know it kind of does. Because Anthony Bourdain said it did in his book. Didn't he? Didn't he say that in his book? Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. Uh, Kitchen Confidential? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, if we're really quiet, we can hear the train going by. Is that what that is? Yeah, Oh, we, we timed this recording well. That's okay. So just know that that's a train, everybody. We live uh, close to a train. 
empathy empathy can also save time so if you're if you're you know discussing and negotiating with somebody and you take the time to show a little bit of empathy understand where they're coming from it can stop you from spinning the wheels uh, you know, it roots out what the problems are early and then people be likely to be more comfortable sharing information about Absolutely. what their needs are. And then you're more likely to be able to meet those needs. We, we practice this, uh, uh, in the group home setting, you know, we have empathy for whatever, uh, a person is going through and it definitely opens up, uh, the emotional flood floodgates, you know, and they're able to open up. It's really, uh, it's really quite something. Well, I think it's an important practice in, in, in life mm-hmm. <laughs> to yeah, show it is. empathy, it, right? It truly is, yeah. You know, we have so much content on this topic. I think we'll definitely have to do two parts. Okay, yeah. And I know we good. really, we really focused on Chris Voss for this first part, and there's a, he's, you know, a lot of great information. Still more on his to share, as well as, uh, you know, I've done some research even with Harvard Law. Do you remember the name of his book? I, I would love to. Do you know the name of it? Uh, we, we can do it for yeah, part two. It, well, it's called Never Split the Difference. Never Split the Difference. Okay. I, it's definitely a book that I'll be putting on my list. So yeah. takeaway for this episode is pick something to negotiate on, something in your everyday life. You can maybe review your bills and uh, pick up yeah. the phone and call. Or your insurance. Right. Insure any of the, your bills and, and call yeah. up the insur- you know, the service provider and see what you can do to get that price down. You may be surprised at how much flexibility there is. I guess insurance is a bill. You're right. So I just said like, or your bills. I could have just said that. All right. Anyway, <laughs> thanks for listening, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>